G'day Church, it is somewhat disappointing that I'm with you this morning uh, via video, uh, I'm actually physically in Harvey Bay uh, this week. Uh, it's a bit disappointing to not be with you in person, of course, as church, uh, we love to gather, that's what church means, it's the gathering of God's people, uh, but this is just what we're going to have to do today uh, due to the disruption of floods. However, uh, Although I'm not with you in person, and that isn't optimal, it's not optimal for church to be not to get not to be totally gathered. Uh, what is still true uh, is that God speaks to us. He speaks to us by His Word. His His Spirit takes His Word and plants it deep in our hearts, uh, and God uses that Word to to grow faith in us, uh, to grow us more and more like Jesus. And so today, although I'm not with you in person, uh, I trust that God is at work, and He will be at work because we're going to pray and we're going to be digging deep into His Word this morning. So please join me as we pray. Father God, Your Word is living and active, sharper than any sword. Please may Your Word do its work in us today. May we see Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus reveal the thoughts of our hearts that we might receive more deeply your grace. Amen. I used to joke one of my skills, my superpower, was to offer to help just at the time it's no longer needed. Uh, It was almost a fine art. I could offer to help with the, the washing up just as the last pot or pan was put into the sink or to carry bags from the car just as the last one was picked up by someone else. It seemed like a superpower because I I often got thanks, got the kudos of looking like I cared and was willing to help without the actual effort of helping. Now when I say that out loud, it doesn't sound like a superpower. It sounds pathetic. Though I wonder if for some... That's what it's like with Christian things. You know how to play the game. You've hung around church enough to know how to get people's approval, how to look good, without having the gospel having deeply soaked into your heart, without being truly changed by Jesus. You know how to look good, but it's fake. It's all a show. This isn't new. We're going to see this has been happening since the start, since the earliest church. In fact, today in Acts chapter 5, we read the first time the word church is used of a Christian gathering. The gathering of believers in Jerusalem is for the first time called church. And sadly, it's in the context of some people who are putting on a show. They're duplicitous, trying to look more godly, more pious than they actually are. Though part of the reason they're faking it is because overall, God's people have been radically changed by Jesus. What we're hearing from God's word this morning is a warning, but most of all it's an encouragement, an encouragement to know Jesus and to have our lives radically oriented around Him and His gospel. Because overall, that's what happened in the earliest believers in Jerusalem. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we heard, uh, we looked at the end of Acts 2. We saw what the earliest believers were like. Uh, They were full of awe, love and gladness. And last week we saw the first opposition to the gospel. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious and political leaders, they put Peter and John in the watch house overnight. And in the morning, they let them go with a warning. Stop talking about Jesus, stop doing anything in the name of Jesus. And they respond by gathering with God's people and praying not for comfort, but for boldness. And it's in this context of growing opposition that we see God's people united and showing astounding generosity to one another. Please read with me, open your Bible, keep your Bible open, read with me from verse 32, Acts 4, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, this is the same kind of thing we heard about in chapter 2. Out of love, believers are seeing some of their fellow Christians are in need. They don't have enough food. Or they're homeless. And so, other believers, people who've got resources, they sell what they have, give it to the apostles. And then the apostles distribute it to those in need. And as we see in verse 32, this was a practical expression of their unity. They didn't just pay lip service to the unity of the Spirit. They put it into action. Now we read this, and I reckon some of us think Luke's exaggerating. Surely no one was actually willing to sell what they owned and give it to the apostles so they could give it to Christians in need. But it really happened. And to drive the point home, Luke tells us about one particular bloke who did this. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprius, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This bloke is the same Barnabas we'll meet later in Acts. He ends up travelling with Paul, proclaiming Christ, living out his nickname, Encourager. And you can see where he gets his name from. His generosity is an encouragement. An encouragement to those who are helped by his generosity. An encouragement to those who followed his example. Now this is something I didn't get back into back in chapter 2. But part of what's going on here is Luke is demonstrating these earliest believers are living out Israel's calling. Remember back in chapter 1. Uh, The question was, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Part of the answer to this question is, as we see people from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth, as we see them living for Jesus, there are hints that they're living out what Israel was always meant to be. We see this in verse 34 that says, 
There was no needy person among them. No poverty, no homelessness in the earliest Christian community. Which is what was promised for Israel if they lived God's ways. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, However, there need be no poor people among you. And the context of this verse is, the reason that we know needy people, no poor people, is because under the law of Moses, every seventh year, every Sabbath year, all debts were cancelled. It didn't matter if you borrowed $20 or $20,000, when the Sabbath year came around, all debts were wiped clean. It's an astounding way to think about money and possessions. Though it made sense in the law of Moses, because they realised everything was an inheritance. It all came from God. It didn't really belong to them, so they could use it. They could use God's possessions to provide for those in need. Unfortunately, this rarely happened. There's no evidence in the Bible that the cancelling of debts ever happened. And so there were needy people, people stuck in the debt cycle in Israel. But not in the Jerusalem church. These earliest followers of Jesus, who are God's people centred in Jerusalem, they were generous to one another. Just as God had been generous to them, just as God had generously poured out his Holy Spirit on them, extravagantly forgiving all their sin, so they generously sold what they had to provide for those in need. There was not a needy person among them. This week we've seen some astounding generosity in our town And not only from Christians, but we've seen Christian generosity too. People with power, opening up their homes so others can cook and shower. Some folk drove around collecting food to deliver to the council who were able to get it to people who were cut off. Wasn't it great to see? A reflection of the kind of things we see in Acts. Though we have to admit, compared with Barnabas... It's a pale reflection. Not just giving a few cans of food or showing hospitality for a few days. Barnabas sold a field. I don't think it was everything he owned, but huge. Uh, An inspiring uh, piece of property. It would have been worth a a significant amount of money. His actions are convicting. Uh, John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin in his commentary on these verses says... We must have hearts that are harder than iron if we are not moved by the reading of this narrative. In those days, the believers gave abundantly of what was their own. We in our day are content, not just jealously to retain what we possess, but callously to rob others. They sold their own possession in those days. In our day, it is the lust to purchase that reigns supreme. At that time, love made each man's own possessions common property for those in need. In our day, such is the inhumanity of many that they begrudge to the poor a common dwelling upon earth, the common use of water, air and sky. If that stings, it's probably because it's true. 
It was true in the 1500s when Calvin was around. It's just as true now. Though we need to examine ourselves, we need to know our own hearts in this and our own situations. I need to apologise for not saying this back in Acts 2. For some of us, we need to see the example of Barnabas. And if we're not moved to similar generosity, maybe our hearts are as hard as iron. But for others, you're on the other side of the page. You need to be receiving from the Barnabases among us. And if that is your situation, whether your need is temporary, like you need help cleaning up after the flood, or if your need is long-term, then do not feel guilty to receive. And please tell us. Let the elders, let Tom and myself know. Let us know of your need so God's people can step up and put into practice our unity in the Spirit. The church in Jerusalem sounds fantastic. It sounds like a model church, a church we'd love to be a part of. But there's more to the story. Sadly, not everyone was a Barnabas. And we see this as Luke tells us about a very different couple. Verse 1, Acts 5.1 Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Wow! And this is fantastic! They sound just like Barnabas. And we expect this to be another encouraging story, another encouraging example. Except verse 2. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The word translated kept back, it's a word normally meaning stealing. Now we're about to hear that the property Ananias and Sapphira sold, it was their own property. They could do whatever they want with it. But by saying they kept back or stole... Maybe what happened is this couple pledged to give the whole amount. They told the apostles, they told the church, that's what they were going to do. They were going to be just like Barnabas. They wanted everyone to think that's what they were like. Extremely generous, just like Barnabas. But it was completely phony. And Peter saw right through it. Verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that is the price.' Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in 
and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. It's pretty extreme. But why? It seems over the top. Especially since, as Peter says, it was their property. They didn't have to give any money to those in need. Not a cent. And so what's so bad about a little fib? What's the problem if they gave, say, half the money away and kept the rest? It's just a white lie. It doesn't hurt anyone. In fact, it helped some people. The problem is it's fake godliness. It's pretend piety. It's not about the money. Their lie reveals their heart. The call of the gospel is to repent, to turn from sin and turn to God. True repentance requires transparency. Instead of lying and hiding your sin from God, repentance is telling the truth. It's why we talk about confessing sin. It's telling the truth to God about your sin. Before God, there's no such thing as a white lie. And in the gospel, there's there's no need for lies. What does Jesus, especially Jesus' death and resurrection, reveal about God? Jesus reveals God's heart of mercy and grace. Even though God knows the depths of our sin, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't wipe us out. Instead, in Jesus, God comes near. He comes down into our fallen, broken, cursed world. On the cross, Jesus is made sin. He takes onto himself the punishment we deserve so we can come to him and receive true and full forgiveness. The lies of Ananias and Sapphira are completely at odds with that. What Peter says is true. They have not been filled with the Holy Spirit, but Satan has filled their hearts. At this point... People wonder whether Ananias and Sapphira were actually Christians. Had they repented and been baptised at Pentecost, or after seeing the lame man healed, or were they just hangers-on? Maybe excited by the energy of the Jesus movement, but they never really believed. It's an understandable question to ask, and it raises the important point about church discipline. Church discipline is more nuanced than removing people from membership, excommunication. It includes counselling and rebuke, but if the situation warrants, a person can be removed from a church as discipline. And if a church disciplines someone by removing them from membership, then although it doesn't say with absolute confidence that the person isn't saved, the church is saying we don't have confidence that they are. So were they Christian? God's discipline at least puts a question mark over them. And it's important to see this was God's discipline. The apostles, the elders of the church, didn't execute Ananias or Sapphira. There's no hint in the Bible that elders had anything like the authority to do that. But with God's direct discipline, it's right for us to think about church discipline. But 
there's a problem. There's a problem with the question of whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were Christian. The problem is, if that is the main question, if that is the first question you think about, and then you decide, well, they mustn't have been Christian anyway, because God would never cause a believer to drop dead. He would never discipline a believer then the problem is you hear of this event and you give a huge sigh of relief. You go, oh, well, I've dodged a bullet then. It's okay because God would never do that to me. He'd never do anything like that to me because I'm a Christian. But that's not how the church in Jerusalem responded. That's not how we are to respond. They responded by fearing God. Verse 11. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The response of what happened that day is fearing God, taking God seriously. Now sometimes I hear Christians talking about fearing God or reverence. Often the comment is made about there being no reverence in a church. What I think people mean when they say this is when they went to a church service, the atmosphere didn't feel reverent to them. I think what people mean is because of the architecture or the style of music or the clothes people were wearing, it didn't manufacture an atmosphere of reverence. It didn't feel like reverent worship. The word fear has shown up twice so far in Acts. And neither time does it mean manufacturing a certain ambience in a church gathering. In fact, with Ananias and Sapphira and the fear of God in the Jerusalem church, it's got nothing to do with liturgy or the vibe of their gatherings. Now, of course, this event would have impacted the vibe of their gatherings as people heard what God had done. They would have taken God even more seriously on Sundays and Mondays and Tuesdays. The way they would have shown their fear of God would have had little to do with the clothes they wore on Sunday and everything to do with being open and honest with each other. Our fear of God shows by being true to each other, not lying, not pretending to be more godly, more pious than we actually are, but confessing our sins to one another, speaking the truth in love to one another, generously giving to those in need, opening up our homes in radical hospitality. If the Jerusalem church feared God because of Ananias and Sapphira's sin, their pretend piety, surely their fear of God would be shown in true godliness, a godliness that comes out of the gospel, the gospel that says we're sinners who need to repent, and the gospel that says Jesus died so sins can be wiped away and times of refreshing can come from the Lord. This is a challenging incident. Especially if, as the theologian Stanley Hauerwas said recently in his reflection on American churches, he said that many congregations are a conspiracy of niceness, a community that lives under a covenant that says, I promise never to tell you the truth about you if you will do the same for me. A conspiracy of niceness. 
that bites. That stings because I think he's onto something. What is God's word to us, to you today? Do you fear God? Take him deadly seriously? Or have you just learnt how to play the game? How to manufacture the right air around yourself on a Sunday? Is there a conspiracy of niceness? You don't have to be honest with me, and I won't be honest with you. Brothers and sisters, this is the opposite of what the gospel calls us to. The call of the gospel is to repent, to turn to God, to tell him the truth. And the good news is, because of Jesus, he will not reject you, no matter how ugly or shameful the truth is. Jesus went to the cross because he knows that truth. He went to the cross to bring forgiveness and restoration, no matter our truth. And if this is the gospel of Jesus, if this gospel that's the heart of our church, it will be seen in Openness, transparency, confession, love, generosity and hospitality, anything less reveals that we don't know God, that we don't fear him, we don't take him seriously. If you don't know Jesus, I reckon this is a great reason to come to him. Pretending is exhausting. But by his spirit, Jesus promises times of refreshing. He will know your truth and offers forgiveness. And if you are trusting Jesus, today we're being called to press into knowing him, to stop any pretense. And because we know his grace, to be open and honest before him and in our relationships with one another. You might need to do some business with God today. You might need to say something to a brother or sister today to be honest with them. That might sound scary, but it's less scary than lying to God. And it's not scary if we're looking to Christ. So I'm going to give us a moment to sit and reflect before God. And then I'll pray. Father God, we come before you first to confess, to be honest with you. We know too often We've just played the game. We've learned how to pretend to be godly. But it's just a show. We're wanting to look good and get kudos from others. Oh Lord God, we are sorry for our sin. And come before you honestly because we know you know our hearts. And even more we know you give full and free forgiveness in Jesus. Please forgive us. And strengthen us to be honest. Help us to hold our possessions lightly, knowing they really belong to you. 
May we be motivated by the example of people like Barnabas to put into action the love and unity we enjoy in the Spirit. Amen.